Welcome back to the Sleep for Performance podcast. Today I am joined by, and this is where actually you have to insert your name because I'm I can pronounce your first name, but I have a habit of butchering everybody's name. So let's uh, let's let you pronounce your full name so we know it's Roy. Ashley Montero. Montero. You see, I would have yeah. said Monte Montiero or something like that. I would have said something wrong, and then uh, we would yeah <laughs> we would be off to a bad start. <laughs> uh, so I have Ashley on today um, and we'll get into this a little bit more but really what we're focusing on today is a recent paper that Ashley had published in the frontiers in psychology which is titled sleep and mental health issues in current and former athletes a mini review and so this paper is freely available on the internet we'll put a link into the show notes so you can scroll down and have a look at it and um, there's no paywall here which is nice but um, yeah, Ashley, before we get into that, um, tell us a little bit about yourself. Where did you grow up and um, where you went to school and how you got into uh, doing a PhD? Um, so I'm originally from England um, and moved over to Australia when I was about seven. So pretty much grew up in Adelaide, um, lived here ever since, um, then kind of went straight into Flinders University from high school and did an undergrad degree in psychology and kind of went from there. Um, did some placement in a sleep lab and started off doing my honours in sleep and just really enjoyed it. So kind of went straight into my PhD from, from then on. Did you, did you work with um, Michael Gradazar? Were you with him or a different area? No, so I actually did my honours in uh, at Central Queensland University Aberdeen oh, Institute. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so okay. a couple of the people there, which was good. That's with Drew and Sally and Charlie Sargent and... Michael Estelle, yeah. all those guys there. Yeah. Yeah. So I actually had Charlie um, Sergeant and Greg Roach as my supervisors, which was good. <clears throat> yeah. Um, and did you do did, in your honors, did you look at sleep in general or did you look at athletes or shift work or what was your focus there? Um, so I basically looked at um, sleep restriction and sleep staging on effects of sleep inertia after wake. So quite different to what I'm looking at now, but still quite interesting. Yeah, that, that, that's actually sleep inertia is an interesting one because it's something that, um, you know, obviously occurs with people would say driving if they have a nap, obviously there's sleep inertia there. So when we talk about sleep inertia, it's that period of time when we wake up, but obviously that's more pronounced in that window of circadian law between like three and six o'clock in the morning. But it's also relevant for shift workers, but it's also relevant for athletes who get up and train early, who want to yeah. replicate conditions of like Ironman, early morning swimming, um, you know, a lot more endurance uh, sports or even athletes getting up to go and travel um, who travel quite frequently so obviously that sleep inertia has a has an application to a number of different areas yeah um, definitely what was the most surprising thing from your honors that you found um basically that we found that there wasn't too much of an effect of sleep stage at wake we didn't really have a lot of participants from the from the study that we did but um there wasn't too much of an effect of sleep restriction on sleep inertia um in kind of PBT response time, so vigilance after waking. But yeah, it was it was still pretty good eye opener to to research, which was great. And were they sleep restricted for like a one night or two nights or multiple nights or how how was it, how was it designed? I believe it was eight nights um, of sleep restriction. So we looked at two different conditions. I think five hours sleep restricted and just an eight hour control condition. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Very good. And then you headed over to Flinders to do a PhD. So you defected. 
Yeah, well, <laughs> it's quite an interesting one. I, I did my undergrad at Flinders and did my PhD. I did my honours, sorry, still at Flinders, but had external supervisors. Oh, okay, yeah. Um, but yeah, kind of kind of stuck with Flinders and, and went on from there. So you were working undercover with TQU? Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um, what's the focus of your PhD? What's your overall kind of topic that you're focusing on? Uh, basically looking at sleep and mental health for current and retired athletes. That's that's the main area of focus okay. for my research at the moment. And this is your obviously your first publication that's come out from that thesis because if I'm correct, you started only in the last year or so. Yeah, uh, so yeah. this is the first one that, that I've authored. Um, and yeah, started, you know, I think about March last year. So just over a year in now. Yeah. Excellent. So with this paper here, like we said, sleep and mental health issues in current and former athletes, um, you know, it is called a mini review. So what, how, how would you differentiate a mini review from a systematic or a meta-analysis or a scoping review or a narrative review? There seems to be just more and more types of reviews coming out. So I'm just wondering where you would kind of position yeah. this one. Yeah, there's definitely, definitely a lot of different types of reviews. Um, I guess the systematic obviously has that, that rigorous structure of this needs to be done in a certain specific way. Um, the mini review is more of like a narrative review, but a much more condensed version, um, which is better in some ways because I guess it's a lot more digestible information and people are probably a bit more inclined um, to read a lot shorter paper, which is only six or seven pages compared to some of them, which are 20, 30 pages long. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, some of the lit reviews do get quite long. Your your paper is, is nice and punchy. It's uh, nine pages on a PDF, so it's quite nice and easy to uh, to read. Um, so obviously with the you know with a with a review, you obviously go through and scour all these different databases for a bunch of search terms. If anybody isn't familiar with it, you know like Google Scholar or PubMed or so on, um, or your uni libraries, and you go through and put in a heap of keywords which you've outlined here in the research strategy, and um, then you sort of gather all that information together and then nearly kind of like throw it into buckets, so to speak, and then and then write around those buckets, which will be kind of common themes. So the first one you found here, I think, um, actually, if I'm correct, is the sleep and mental health in, in current athletes. So can you can you tell us a little bit, bit about what you found here in terms of this relationship with mental health, if any? Uh, basically, the, the biggest thing is they found um, that sleep and mental health issues are pretty prevalent amongst athletes. Um, there's quite a lot of factors that contribute to that. Um, and there's kind of a big bi-directional relationship between the two. Um, so if you get poor sleep, that's likely to negatively impact your mental health. And then on the same hand, um, if you've got, if you're suffering from mental health issues, then that can negatively affect your sleep. So it's kind of a, a seemingly never ending cycle, um, which can happen for athletes. So, yeah. And um, when we talk about mental health, how would you classify um, the mental health issues that you're looking at with these athletes? Is it more these what we call common mental health issues or are we talking about, you know, more serious conditions like maybe schizophrenia or um, psychopaths or whatever it might be? Yeah. Like what, what, what's the sort of thing you were looking for? Was it completely open or, or have you divided those into, into groups again or categories? Um, so mainly looking at the, the common mental health disorders, so things like depression, anxiety, poor quality of life and things like that. Um, also have delved a little bit into um, the more serious like schizophrenia, bipolar side of things in the current research we're doing at the moment. But yeah, I think the main ones of focus will be depression and anxiety. 
Okay. And with the athletes that you looked at as well, did you categorize those into different groups or did you get a sense of that even looking at the literature? Like what I'm thinking about at the moment is like combat athletes and contact athletes where I've done a lot of work in. Um, obviously there's a potential relationship there with head trauma um, versus even team sports where there's lots of lots of games like baseball, for example. It's got like, you know, 180 games in six months um, versus individual sports where they might only compete four or five times a year um you know versus more skilled skill-based sports which don't rely on um any sort of contact with any other person or heaps of physical training such as i don't know maybe table tennis you know that sort of thing yeah definitely so we're we're looking at at the moment for this research the the broader community of athletes so um currently what we're doing is looking at athletes from all different spectrums of sport from individual to team sport and from amateur all the way up to elite um and I think that's what we try to replicate in the paper as well. So looking at all types of athletes, um, but it, it's hard, especially with the current research that's out there. A lot of the research is focused on those elite athletes and um, certain sports. So as you said, the contact sport athletes, a lot of the, the research, particularly post-retirement, has been on sleep behaviours for those who've had symptoms of concussion or previous history of concussion. So there's been quite a lot on that, but not a whole lot um, looking at kind of a diverse array of athletes. Yeah, I believe you might better sense this, but I believe there was a paper released, I want to say maybe five or six years ago, that looked at the relationship between sleep and common mental health disorders in retired rugby union players from the UK, South Africa, and so on. Yeah. I actually found a very high prevalence. I'm not sure if you referenced it in this one, um, but um, that was that was one that actually showed a very high relationship with these retired players and these are these are people like in their 40s and 50s you know so yeah. not, not extremely old you know yeah definitely um, i think that does come to memory it might have been one that i've referenced i'm not too sure yeah but it was quite high i remember like it was it was really high like over 50 percent of them i think were having sleep issues so it's interesting to talk about this bi-directional this kind of cause and effect which way it's going um do you have a sense of maybe particular sports that might be causing this to exacerbate these mental health issues uh, particularly i think the the contact sports so things like concussion history definitely have a huge impact on it um but then you've also got factors such as level of competition um where elite kind of athletes have a lot more pressures that they they face when it comes to the mental health side of things where they get pressures from the media expectations to perform um and that side of things so yeah, there's, there's quite a big big area in that too. Yeah, that's something I don't think that's really been explored well enough in the research is, we'll say, the stress and anxiety in, in the, like, let's say, the week of a fight. So I've worked with some, yeah. um, you know, elite MMA or athletes or things like that, and the week of a fight, like cutting weight or dealing with media, and I've worked in Formula One as well. So like the, the week of a race, like you, you can't comprehend the effect or the impact that's yeah. on someone's sleep and you know, their nervous system before they go on, you know, jump in a cage in their underwear and fight somebody or get into a car that's traveling at 300 kilometers an hour. And, yeah. you know, it's this dog and pony show all a week before it, which must absolutely drive these athletes uh, crazy. So, yeah, as, as, um, as you probably would have found, there's very, very little on that. No one's really looked at the impact of that sort of, let's say, pre-competition anxiety and, and nervousness. The only one that comes to mind is Laura Julius' work looking at sleep yeah. disturbances on, you know, sort of in the nights before the competition. So, yeah. yeah. And then I guess when you kind of pair that as well with, with the 
competition timings and the behaviours surrounding um, sleep and competition, um, particularly for late night games if or late night competitions, and then you've got early morning recoveries. The environments that these athletes have to sleep in aren't very conducive to their sleep. Um, they're pretty haywired the night before, uh, the night after their competition, and can often struggle to go to bed. And then having to be forced to wake up early again can be pretty difficult. Yeah, that's definitely an impact. We did some research a few years ago in uh, Super Rugby, and that's exactly what we found was like, particularly like caffeine strategy was a big issue. And obviously yeah. it's hard to separate out each and in each individual factor in, in a, a sort of an implied research setting because you can't like simulate a rugby game in a laboratory. If you did, yeah. anyway, it would break the walls. But, um, <laughs> but like it's, um, it's a contact sport or wound up lights on and like you said a timing of the competition as well but even like the caffeine was mistimed and had a massive effect and to give people a bit of an idea is um on average these guys fell asleep at 20 past two in the morning but someone didn't fall asleep till half seven the next morning so it's got this significant effect um under 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 sleep have you been have you seen some of the e-sport research coming out ashley no i haven't actually um that would be pretty interesting though because i know that there's some strange timings for, for some of that. Yeah, I've been working a little bit with Daniel Bonner, who's actually doing his PhD with Michael Gradisar through Flinders. Um, and he's been looking at eSport. And it's, he's published a paper recently. <laughs> and it's absolutely fascinating because he's had athletes, I think, in Australia, South Korea, and God, no, I'm getting, I can't remember if it was the US or the UK, but anyway, it was like three different groups. And um, some of these eSport athletes aren't going to bed till 7 a.m. So they're basically like permanent night shift workers. Yeah, that's that's crazy. Yeah, and I often wonder, like, what's what's going to happen there? Being you know completely, you know, nearly gone nocturnal. What effect is that going to have on them? They're pretty young, so they can probably override the deleterious effects of it at the moment. But what's going to happen to them as they get older? Did you find any of that going on in any of this research that's out there? Uh, in terms of age, in terms know? of like, sorry, in terms of the like the late night, the extreme late night behaviors and a relationship with any common mental health disorder. Was, was there any groups like? like esports maybe not going to bed at seven in the morning but going to bed maybe consistently every morning at three or four was there any of that out there published um not that i've seen i actually worked on a paper with with some of the guys at cdu um looking at the sleep behaviors of afl athletes yeah um for an entire competition but um some of them i don't think got to bed until like three o'clock in the morning mm. because i think they were based in perth so they were traveling to the east coast and then flying home the night of the competition. Um, but this was probably, I think, data from about eight or nine years ago now. So yeah. I don't know if those practices have changed or not. But Oh, no, they haven't. They're still the same. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, 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 it's idiotic. And I've said that before yeah. as well. And I think what's, what's happened in AFL, and I've been very open about this with a couple of um, head performance guys, is you're, putting, you're basically sending people home after a game to manage yeah. behavior in case the guys go out and get pissed. And you're not actually managing sleep and recovery. So you've got, yeah. you're trying to manage it through a discipline issue, issue, but you've got guys coming off the plane after a red eye or two o'clock in the morning, whatever it might be. And they're just completely discombobulated for days afterwards instead of staying yeah. overnight and getting a good night's sleep. So yeah, unfortunately it's, it's still happening. And I think it's around behavior. Yeah, for sure. Which is pretty poor. And um, what about training times? Um, was there any relationship between training times and, um, and I know obviously you weren't looking at it statistically, but just anecdotally, like from what you read, like was early morning trainings associated with anything or late evening training sessions or midday or 
was there any sort of uh, we'll say you know chronobiology issues here that you would have picked up yeah i think there was quite a bit on particularly the the early morning training so for your, particularly your individual athletes so your swimmers runners and things like that having to get up at ridiculous hours in the morning um, and then expected to do their normal routines throughout the day as well um, can have a massive circadian effect um, and then if you look at some of your even basketball basketball players who play very late games as well and and train at kind of similar times um, it can be quite hard to to get those good sleep behaviors in yeah, you mentioned two areas there, which I've recently published in. One was in um, was in swimming, and we did it with master swimmers, although they weren't like you know uh, elite or even sub elite. But it's interesting because the am- the amateur sort of master swimmers up around forty years of age are probably worse because they have to swim in the morning before work. Yeah, and uh, myself and Spencer Roberts published this paper recently in the Journal of Sports Science and Coaching, and it's like people think, oh. If I get up early and get out of the way, it's fine. And I'll be able to sleep that night. But it was actual fact that the early morning training sessions were causing more of a sleep issue, like reducing sleep duration, as opposed to trending in the evening. But yeah. they would have subjectively said the opposite, that the, yeah. that, the, that the late night session was curtailing sleep. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, that, that's another factor as well, if you're looking at um, level of competition too, particularly those people who are pushing to get to that next level. Um, so those who are semi-professional who have to still work on the side, they have to get up for yeah. the nine to five, trying to fit training in at, at these crazy hours of the day. Whereas your professionals probably get a bit more leeway. They can do their tra- morning training routine, go home, have a nap or something like that. Whereas the other people will just have to, to stick to their normal work routine too. Yeah, for sure. I think that's um, that's something as well that's overlooked in the kind of what's said a semi-pro areas. And I haven't seen much of that um, out there. Interesting enough, um, we did some stuff with the Perth Links, and it was like an educational intervention, um, looking at sleep. When we collected the baseline measures, because the trend from twelve o'clock to like about three or four in the yeah. afternoon, the sleep in the baseline was eight point one hours. So it was like, wow. wow, like that's so good. Um, yeah. And, you know, like, I think the average age of these um, athletes was like 24, 25, but 8.1 hours per night. It was like, it was so hard to try and like use an education strategy to optimize yeah. the sleep. Um, there wasn't, there was no real change in the athletes, but what was, what, what did change was the, um, the coaches yeah. because they were coming in really early and they were curtailing their sleep, but they were coming early and do lots of stuff. But then they had the biggest kind of shift in sleep from the education because they were kind of going, oh, I n- never realized all this stuff. You know? Yeah. <laughs> but it was good because what it did was it, it made the, the coaches really kind of focus on, on what was happening with the athletes as well because they was in, being impacted by them. And I think John Paul Kay did some stuff like this in rugby league as well where he looked at coaches as well in terms of, um, in terms of sleep behaviors. Is that something that came up um, in in your search terms around looking at coaches um, or ancillary staff, or was that completely out of scope? Yeah, a little bit came up um, around the coaches' sleep behaviours as well. We didn't focus too much on that, um, but we looked at coaches' behaviours and attitudes towards sleep um, was an interesting one and how many of those promoted good sleep behaviours and encourage people to seek help when they when, when they were struggling with their their sleep and mental health. So that was that was quite an interesting area. You also discussed in here as well, Ashley, about the relationship between uh, sleep disorders. And I'm very disappointed in you, by the way, 
I'm very disappointed. Yeah, yeah, I'm so disappointed. You never quoted one of my papers in here about obstructive sleep oh, apnea no. in, in rugby players. <laughs> I need to 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 find them up and. I was I'll have to I'll have to write a letter back. You know, I was so oh. disappointed. I was really reading it. I was really reading it this morning. I thought. Oh, I bet you. And I was like, he didn't even he didn't even reference me. I was so you you, you referenced this uh is it tumulate T O T U O M and John Paul Kerr. But I had a higher level of PSG. I did in lab PSG with 25 rugby players, and I and that John Paul Kerr only did level two. Like oh. just so yeah. disappointing. I'll, I'll have to take this as a podcast. <laughs> yeah. All right. But it, but it, <laughs> interestingly enough, um you know, you said here about with athletes up to 45% um, suffering from OSA. And look, we had about, I think, 20 odd percent suffering from OSA and then some from periodic leg movement disorder. Um, yeah. But um, yeah, how, how did that tie in with some of the, with the mental health stuff? Was there a relationship with those people? Did the ones that had more prevalence seem to have more mental health issues or are you kind of just putting these quantifications out there and saying, look, if this is high, this might be high? Yeah, I think more so putting putting it out there that, there might be a big link between the two. So there's a very high prevalence of things like OSA, insomnia, periodic leg movement disorder, um, and then also high levels of depression and anxiety, um, which aren't usually seen in the general population. Um, and then when you look at other research, which looks at these relationships between the two, and you kind of put two and two together and think that there's definitely something bigger going on there um, that we need to look further into. Yeah, it is interesting because uh, I remember when I collected my data and I was analysing it, my supervisor was going, nah, it can't be that high. And I was going, yeah. <laughs> look, it is. I said, it is that high, you know? It is, it, nah, can't be that high. And I was like, it is. And he's got like, he was like editor of the Respirology Journal at the time, Peter Eastwood. And we were looking at it, he's going, oh shit, it really is that high. And it, exactly to your point, it's like higher than the general population estimates as well. Yeah. And there's this kind of misnomer. I think if you're an athlete that you don't succumb to these um, sleep disorders or you got perfect mental health, because well, why wouldn't you? You're getting paid to yeah. play a sport. Like, you know, you should be absolutely humming and be perfect, but obviously yeah. that's not the case. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think there was even a paper that we put in there about retired NFL players over in the USA. Um, I think they were two and a half times more likely to have OSA than the general population, which is just yeah. crazy. And I, and I think there was also, an, I don't know if it was in that paper or another paper, also a high risk of cardiovascular disease as well. And it's partly got yeah. to do with weight gain as yeah, well for sure. with, with the OSA. Because um, these American football guys, if you think rugby players are big, these guys are absolutely yeah. humongous. Yeah. Now, one thing, um, Ashley, you put in here around the athletes at the moment, before we go on to the retired athletes, which I was really surprised about because I never even thought about it. And I was like, wow, this is, this is, um, and I'd like you to explain this a little bit more because I never even consider this with sleep. Clinical eating disorders. What's going on there? I guess the the big area of that is a lot of eating disorders are linked to things like anxiety, perfectionism, um, and constant worry as well. And trying to make sure that you're in control of everything. Um, I'm controlling what's getting put into my body, things like that. Um, and then struggling to to control your sleep behaviors and worrying that you're going to get enough sleep, worrying that all these kind of things. Um, yeah, it's pretty, it seems to be a pretty big link there as well. Was it more in females than males or equal or? 
yeah, I think I think it was a lot higher in females than males. Um, and I think those particular sports such as gymnastics and and dance sports, mm-hmm. um, where there's a big focus on body size and body image as well. Yeah, the aesthetics is um yeah, yeah driving a lot of behavior. It's interesting because there's a guy, um, an Irish guy called Colin Doherty, who recently moved here to Perth, but he was in Copenhagen doing his master's. He's come here to do a PhD with a guy called Oliver Barley, I believe, at ECU, Eda County University. And he's actually looking at eating disorders, not related, not relation to sleep, but I think eating disorders and body image issues in um in mixed martial arts. Yeah. Which I was like so surprised about. But yeah, it's it's an area like I never even thought about. And um, some of the stuff here that you had um, put in was like, wow. But but equally surprising as well, um, you had here that about a little over 15%. The, the, the numbers here are quite staggering, actually, just to give people an idea. A survey of Australian athletes showed 27% having depression, 22% having eating disorders, 14%, nearly 15% having social anxiety. Um, there was also then depression, anxiety, and some other cohorts was nearly as high as 50%. And the one that's really like shocking, and although you said it wasn't surprising, but it's still shocking that nearly 16% or 15.6% of collegiate athletes reported suicidal ideation. And then, you know, like you said there, with some unfortunately attempting and committing suicide as well, that's extremely high. Yeah, it's it's scary numbers um, yeah. when you think about it and you put it in perspective. Um, that's well, basically 16 out of 100 people, which is ridiculous. How, um, just kind of, you know, hypothesizing here about over the last couple of years with pandemics and lack of sport and changing demographics going on, how do you think that may have interacted with this for athletes? I think it would have a huge impact for sure. Um, I think if we're kind of talking about that college population as well, um, for those athletes who are trying to push to that next level and trying to get um, into like your NFL and things like that. Like it's, it's a big deal from them. And, and when they're not allowed to play that sport and when they, when they're unable to, um, it's quite scary when they think about other perspectives um, and other job prospects outside of something that they know and they, they know that can excel in. Yeah. Well, it's always, that's probably the importance of, um, you know, having other things to do in your life and not being completely yeah. focused on one thing and having a transition yeah. plan. And, you know, I know a lot, a lot of professional teams like do work on that with athletes as well as they get older is making sure to have an education and transition plan and they're not just kind of left there with nothing to do and no purpose at the end of the day. Yeah, definitely. Excellent. All right. So the next part then, um, Ashley, that you kind of grouped this into was uh, sleep and mental health and retired athletes. And again, you were kind of anecdotally look at this and go, well, they're retired now. They've got all the time in the world. They've got no pressure of playing sports. They've made yeah. millions of dollars and they're sitting back having a great time. Because um, everybody seems to think like that. Everybody's like Michael Jordan and has money to burn and sits back. Yeah. <laughs> um, but obviously that wasn't the case. Can you tell us a little bit about what you found here? Uh, we looked at um, this. We kind of found that there was two main types of retired athletes so those who kind of retired either voluntarily or those who retired involuntarily and particularly for those who retired involuntarily through things like injury or delisting um, or just being dropped from the team um, it's quite hard because it's very unexpected most of the time Um, if you've got a career-ending injury you're not really ready for that massive change Um, 
and that can happen financially as well. It can have a huge impact um, and also socially. And there can be a massive withdrawal. Um, if you look at some of these guys who are spending five, six of their days of the week um, with their teammates and then all of a sudden they're, they're dropped from the team or they can't play anymore, um, kind of what happens then. Um, and it can have a massive toll on their, their psychological well-being. Yeah, it kind of, again, it comes back to probably that sense of purpose and identity, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. Around it. Um, so what's the sort of uh, what's the sort of issues then that people go on to have um, with retired athletes? Do we are you seeing more of we'll say drug and alcohol abuse here? Is it more down to like loneliness and depression, just being isolated? Is it the lack of activity? Is there any sort of kind of key factors that exacerbate this for these retired athletes? Um, I think it's all of those factors. Um, there seems to be a lot of uh, negative coping behaviors. So your drug and alcohol abuse, poor eating behaviors. Um, and we know that they all contribute to, to poor sleep and mental health. And that kind of adds to that seemingly never ending cycle. If, if you're getting bad sleep, your mental health is poor. And then it just continues to grow and grow and grow. Um, and if they're not educated on where to get the help um, that they need, it can be quite hard to break that cycle. Yeah, the other thing I am, um, I wrote an article recently just for the Sleep Performance website, um, which people may have seen, which was talking about some of this stuff in retired athletes. Um, and it was basically around the relationship between um, one of these um, sleep disorders. And I, I don't think you talk, you spoke about these sleep disorders in athletes because I don't think there's much information. And there wasn't anyone I was finding anyway, but rapid eye movement behavior disorder in combat and contact sport athletes. And I wrote a blog on this based upon a retired MMA athlete who was on uh, Joe Rogan's podcast, uh, a guy called Michael Bisping. And yeah. I, he's actually married to a lady from Adelaide, I think, uh, from South Australia. But um, in this, I spoke about the, about REM behavior disorder and these retired athletes. And also what's interesting is that, um, to be off the back of your um, thing here, and I'm not saying that Michael has a mental health issue. He, he doesn't, as far as I know, but, um, and he's a really nice guy. He's, he's, um, he's a great commentator and he's, he does a lot of positive things in MMA. But what's interesting is when you look at something like uh, REM behavior disorder or RBD, there is a link between RBD and uh, CTE. It's yeah. very, very interesting. So that, that, you know, from, and obviously CTE, um, chronic traumatic encephal encephalopathy. I can never pronounce these big words. <laughs> I should go and be a scientist. Um, and so a, a paper in like a couple of years ago found that 32% of contact sport athletes actually had RBD REM behavior disorder due to CTE. So lots of three letter acronyms in there, but it's this kind of relationship between repeated head trauma, you know, is related then to these behavior disorders during REM, which obviously cause, you know, not only a safety issue for them and their sleeping partner, but also a reduction in sleep as well, which then obviously would have this kind of, you know, negative downward spiral of what goes on. Yeah. So, um, so yeah. Yeah, it's quite interesting. Did um, What about the link between body wear? Ashley, because a lot of athletes, not in every sport, but a lot of athletes tend to get quite out of shape and then start developing like OSA or other stuff as well. Was there any stuff on that that you had seen? Yeah, I think there was quite a lot on particularly the OSA stuff because um, body body weight and neck circumference uh, are directly linked to um, OSA. So I guess I can't talk too much on this, but um, when you're such a, a regimented um, athlete, sorry, um, and you, you're eating quite a lot um, to fuel your training. And then if your retirement happens quite suddenly and, and you're not 
kind of tapering off and you're still eating in those same ways and you're not exercising anywhere near as much as you used to, the weight's going to go up pretty quickly. Mm. So, yeah, I think there's there's quite a big link there. Yeah, I think uh, Jeff Hugel, the former Australian swimmer, was quite vocal about that. He he was, you know, he retired and then came back and then retired again, but he openly spoke about the challenges of a weight gain um, when he retired yeah. because you were still eating the same amount of calories. But, you know, at the end of the day, it doesn't take a dietitian probably to know that's calories in versus calorie out. It's a very simple yeah. It's a very simple, uh, very simple <laughs> equation. And if you're consuming too much and not burning it, well, it's going to be stored as excess. And um, it's not a magic, um, it's not a magic disease that afflicts you. So yeah, happens to us all. So before we kind of um, transition into the future directions for your PhD, you did have a section here on barriers to seeking help. And this will be interesting because a lot of people would say, well, in today's world, actually, there's lots of stuff about mental health. There's lots of ad campaigns. We have Are You Okay It Is? There's talk about mindfulness, there's, you know, well-being programs in workplaces and with athletes. Surely there must be a raft of stuff out here that people can avail of. And why, why aren't they availing it? So, you know, this is what people may think, but is that, is that actually happening? Is, is it getting better or is it getting worse? Or where are we? Um, it seems to definitely be getting better, um, especially on the mental health side of things. There's been definitely in the, in the past couple of recent years, a lot more promotion on mental health awareness um, and help seeking, but there doesn't seem to be a whole lot on sleep. Um, sleep, I've found, has always been one of those things that kind of sits on the back burner and doesn't get prioritised by athletes or coaching and staff. It's a, oh, kind of, you'll be right. Um, you'll catch up on it, um, but people never seem to catch up on it. Um, mm. So, yeah, mental health definitely seems to be going in the right direction, but the, the sleep education definitely seems to be lacking. Um, in general yeah it's, it's interesting because it is an intervention that's used a lot across but say industry but i think there's only like a couple of papers myself matt driller um maybe shannon o'donnell like three or four, one in netball one in cricket and one in basketball looking at sleep education as an intervention um yeah. and you would think like that more more um more teams would do it and maybe it's happened, but maybe it's not being published. And that's the other thing as well, is that not every intervention or every action is getting published. So we, you know, we yeah. know that as well. So sometimes teams are doing stuff for years before even a scientific publication comes out. And that's because there's not a lot of money going into athletic research, as you well know. Yeah. Um, but that's a conversation for another day. Um <laughs> where we where you, where you can vent on your own. Um but what um what are the interventions maybe out there at the moment, Ashley, that we don't know about that you might have come across? Is there any extra ones out there that people are doing that's kind of novel that hasn't been published? Um, not on the top of my head, no. Um, you mentioned about sleep extension um, is definitely a good option um, and thing that can be utilised by quite a lot of athletes. But um, I guess it's the resources as well um, where elite top-level athletes probably got a lot more access to these type of interventions. but you look at the the semi-professional or even amateur athlete probably won't get as much attention on that area. Mm. And so where to now you've, you've, uh, you know, you've, you've started off this PhD, you've done this mini review, you've got a really good sense now of, you know, what's out there more, more to the point, what, what's not out there. Um, have you constructed a series of studies you're going to do over the next few years or um, have you done those already? Are you going to finish in six months? <laughs> Uh, de definitely not going to finish in the next six months um yeah probably uh, maybe about two years or so we'll, we'll see how that goes but um yeah so we're, we're running three separate studies uh, for the phd um so the first one is just finishing up at the end of this month we're we're doing a wide scale 
um, survey on sleeping mental health for current retired athletes. Um, and yeah, hoping to close the survey at the end of at the end of May. Um, and is that for um, former elite athletes or amateur or all types or how you? What's your yeah? We're, look, we're looking at all types, so all athletes from all levels of competition, all types of sports, um, just to get a better idea of what's out there, what kind of issues are affecting people, um, and how prevalent they are. Um, so we've we've extended that survey um, across Australia the US and the UK um, and Canada as well, I believe. So yeah, it's, it's getting quite a lot of traction that's getting, getting there. So it's been good. Some interesting data, I think will come out of that one. How many people do you think you get doing that? Um, I think we've got about 950 responses Ooh. at the moment. So that's pretty good. Yeah. Quite a lot. So quite a Excellent. lot of data to go through. Yeah. And um, what's your second study then? Uh, the second study will be uh, sleep monitoring of athletes. So monitor the at-home sleep behaviours of current and retired athletes for two-week period. Um, and we'll do some at-home PSG stuff um, for a couple of nights in there too. And the final one? Uh, the final one will be qualitative interviews with retired athletes, um, hopefully to get a bit of understanding of the kind of issues that they face and the, the particular challenges that they've faced in terms of getting help, getting treatment, um, and how their own transition into retirement was, and the kind of resources they thought that they needed to to improve that one. Yeah, you're very you're you're very balanced in terms of like focusing constantly on current and retired athletes. It's it's an interesting one because a lot of people in this space wouldn't even bother looking at the retired athletes. They would just you know aim to quantify the prevalence of the of the current athletes. Is there a particular reason why you're interested in, in retired old people like myself or is, um, I wish I was retired. <laughs> uh, is there a reason why you're focused on that? It's, you just seem quite interested in them um, in the retired part as well. Yeah. I, I think there just seems to not be a whole lot looking at the retired athlete population. There has been some research looking solely at retired, but not a lot in the transitional period between the two. Mm. Um, which I find quite odd considering it's, it's a massive part of their life. Um, and I think for a lot of people, they're, they're kind of left to their own devices once they retire and it can be extremely difficult for them if, if they're not prepared for it. So it'd be interesting to look a lot deeper into that and, and see how that can be improved. And I suppose from a practical standpoint or an outcome of the PhD, do you envisage like a framework being developed that teams or individual athletes can use or follow to go through their career and then into retirement that would ensure that their mental health is um, safeguarded to some degree? Yeah, for sure. So I think I think that's going to be one of the main outcomes um, from the study of how we can improve that, that aspect of their life um, and how coaches um, and support staff as well can be educated to make that transition easier too. Excellent. And uh, what's your goal then, Ashley, when you finish your PhD? Do you want to be an academic? Do you want to uh, run away and never go to school again? Do you want to go and get a real job? What's going to happen? <laughs> uh, still, that's a, that's a tough question. Um, still not 100% sure at the moment. I'm definitely really enjoying the research stuff. So definitely would like to get into academia, but do feel like I need a little bit of a break after I finish uh, <laughs> going straight from school into uni and then straight into the PhD. So yeah, it's been pretty, pretty full on. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's um yeah it's a it's a long it's a long process. I didn't do it that way, and I'm 
I see people doing it. I'm like, you know, you're 27 or 26. You've been at school like all your life. I'm like, I, I just couldn't have done that. Yeah. You know, I, I think I went back at 37 or 38 to do my PhD. And I was like, even then I felt like it, <laughs> that was long <laughs> enough to, when I went to go do it. So, um, so yeah, look, actually wish you all the best luck, mate, with your, uh, with your research. Um, you know, it'd be great to have you back on in the future to talk about some of your findings. Cause I think it's something one we haven't looked at really that much. We had Michael Gradner on, I don't know if you come across Michael Gradner's research before from, um, University of Arizona and Michael has spoken a little bit about mental health issues with athletes. He advises the Olympic committee. Um, you know, so yeah. it's definitely a topic we'd like to like to discuss a bit more. So it'd be very interesting once you start publishing on some of these um, papers or even if you've got data to talk about to come back on and, and have a chat because I'm sure many people are interested in this area and, and particularly because it does cross into different domains such as mental health. So it'd be, uh, it'd be great to have you back on. Yeah, sure, it'd be great. Ashley, if people want to reach out to you and follow you on social media, want to get a hold of your research or just want to send you an email and give you some money to do research for them, how can they get in contact with you? Uh, so I'm on LinkedIn, Twitter as well, and they can just send me an email if they'd like. Um, it's just ashley.montero at flinders.edu.au. No worries. And what's your handle on Twitter? Oh, good question. I don't even know. I think <laughs> I think it's... I think it's Ash Monteria with an underscore at the end. Okay, no worries. We will put those in the uh, show notes. Uh, Ashley, thank you very much. Really appreciate having this conversation with you today. Thanks for your time. Thanks so much for having me on. Cheers, Ian. <laughs>